Hey fam, thanks for checking this little recording out. If you're listening to this, it means you must have attended a talk, workshop, or even a class of mine that I recorded, and you want to get the nitty gritty. That's great. Excellent. If you're just being snoopy and you're trying to figure things out, it's all good. My name's Dan White Hodge. I'm an educator, and you're about to learn something today. Thanks again for following up, and I truly hope this adds an enrichment to you and your work. As always, hit me up if you got them questions at whitehodge.com and check out my podcast while you're at it, Profane Faith. I'll talk with you later. Peace. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. I want to thank the Faith and Music Festival Committee and also Ken Hefner for inviting me here out back out to Calvin. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I've been to Calvin uh, several times now and uh, actually had some of my community college students when I, I'm actually from Southern California and when I was there in Southern California they were at uh, one of the, uh, I think the handful of Christian community colleges uh, and they attended Calvin and so uh, it, it is a pleasure to be back. And I usually get to Calvin uh, at least three or four times a year. Some, somehow, some way, it always happens. I come back to G-Rap, all right, out here in the Michigan, all right? So I also want to thank uh, Josiah and the tech team for figuring this uh, technological issue out. Uh, that is, I, I appreciate y'all brothers for working on that, man. I was like, man, how come the, the black man got to have some technical issues, man? What's up with that? See how it is, man. Don't we got a president in the office? Black? At any rate, uh, <laughs> Uh, at any rate, uh, thank you so much for having me. This particular topic, hip hop, is a uh, is a passion of mine, and it is something that I took up uh, about 13 years ago, really looking at. Now I come out of the hip hop community. Uh, I was a producer. I worked. Don't ask me to rap. I don't rap or dance. I didn't get those stereotypical genes. All right. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I know music, I love music, I've studied music, and I've grown up around a lot of music, and I have a very eclectic taste. A lot of people try to pin me down with music, but if you follow me on Spotify, yet another thing on the internet for, to be followed on, uh, but if you look at my, my playlists, I have a lot on there, from Van Halen to Billy Joel to Merle Haggard, and so I enjoy music, I enjoy listening to how artists compose beats and rhythms and sounds, and so where else can you find that than in hip Pop. In 1989, at the Grammy Awards, the argument that hip-hop and rap was just noise, that argument suddenly ended when DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince won the first Grammy Award for parents just don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And from that point forward, we had a just a renowned, the, essentially what happened was the golden era, what most scholars call between like 88 and about 96, the golden era of hip hop occurred. And you had artists uh, like The Chronic and Dr. Dre come out. You had artists coming out of that like The Roots or Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy and uh, MC Light who were espousing to these truths and these issues that were happening. As Chuck D so eloquently put it, hip-hop for the black and urban community is our CNN. 
See, back in the day, you couldn't just walk into a record store. Now, I'm dating myself now, right? A record store. If you remember record stores, you know, my little girl's growing up in an era where there are no record stores. Her record store is on her computer. So if you still remember Tower Records, all right, and Borders when they had those, you know, um, they didn't have a rap section. And so rap, you had to actually go and look for these albums. And so when King T and Ice-T and Ice Cube came out with their albums, you actually had to go and dig for these albums. And now, of course, the popularization of hip-hop and rap music, uh, you can go just about anywhere now and pick up a rap album. But unfortunately, I, well, I'm a purist when it comes to rap. Not everybody espousing what's going on in the radio is actually down with what hip-hop really is. Now, KRS-One, one of the founding godfathers of this hip-hop movement, says that hip-hop is something that's being lived Rap is something that's being done. So there's a difference in the art of it, all right? There's a difference in the way you approach a certain art. Hip-hop was born in the bellows of suffering and pain, in the post-soul movement of the late 60s and 70s, the questioning of society and morals and ethics and black religious structures that had remained dominant as a sport of the community, but now we're falling apart. And now you had a generation of young people who were born in the womb of what we now call popular culture. See, popular culture didn't exist two, three hundred years ago, but now in the late 60s as we have these shifts, the country is saying we're not going to Vietnam. No Vietnamese ever called me a nigger. So why would I want to go and fight a war when the person who's calling me a nigger is right across the street? So Melly Mel comes on and says, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my mind. Ha, 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 ha. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. And so the music talked about these issues. Run DMC comes out, hard times. Running just like the flu. Watch out, homeboy, don't let it catch you. So we're talking about these things, rap, rhythm, and poetry, and prose. Talking about these things and putting them into action, right? So hip-hop is born in this nebulae that says, who am I? And one of the first urban and ghetto generations that was disconnected from the rest of the popular culture. It's connected from the older generations. And you see this in television, right? One of the best television series that shows this is the Jeffersons. Even the theme song tells you everything. We're moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky high. We're moving on up, all right? We're moving on up. And so it's letting you know, because see, back when segregation was on, you lived right across the street from a Ray Charles or a Quincy Jones or maybe even a Marvin Gaye, because everybody who was a nigga was living in these bellows. But once integration happened, and by no means am I saying that we need to go back to Jim and Jane Crow laws and segregation, but I am saying that one of the pitfalls of it is that if you had money, if you had some clout, you moved away. And so that older generation left. And what was left, as Kamasi Brown puts it, he says, with these young people, like a planet out of orbit. And so hip-hop was formed in that. And in my class, hip-hop, the sociotheological discourses of hip-hop, which we're offering, proud to offer as an official class at North Park University in Chicago this fall. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, we talk about it. I actually go all the way back to the 8th and 7th century looking at different elements of hip-hop. For the sake of that, we don't have that kind of time tonight. We would just say hip-hop, what you know now know of, 
formed in the late 60s, early 70s. And so part of that soul of hip-hop comes an artist that some of you may know, Tupac Amaro Shakur. All right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about this. A lot of this research and material comes out of a book by a good friend of mine that I have contributed called Secular Music and Sacred Theology. It's by Liturgical Press. It's being published here in May of 2013. The editor is Tom Bodine, uh, a good friend of mine. And so Secular Music and Sacred Theology, uh, excellent book, looking at these issues that I think the festival is trying to grapple and wrestle with. So as we break this down, let's look at some of the definitions. And so I wanted to kind of give this definition and kind of looking at what hip-hop is. And then we'll get into Tupac and listen to a little bit of his music. This is a faith in music festival, right? All right. All right. So we're going to listen to a little music. I heard they got some good bass up in here. And I love me some bass, all right? Back in the day, we used to call it 808. If you're a, if you're a tech head, you know that Roland used to make these drum machines called the TR-808. And it was this little drum machine with knobs on it, and that's where you got a lot of the bass sounds that you hear now. Now you got a bunch of knockoffs. I personally used to like that, the TR-909, and I used to use the Elise's HR-16. If you know, if you're a musician, you know those instruments. And I still have my Insonic ASR-10, uh, the digital sampler, and I know it only gives me, it pales in comparison to what my laptop can do, but I still like my two and a half minutes of sample time there. So, yeah, I know, y'all laughing now, but hey, in 94, I was the ball boy, shoot, two and a half minute sample time, shoot. Well, he was tripping off when one gigabyte hard drives came out, like, dang, one gigabyte. You ain't never going to use that much stuff, man. What you need one gigabyte for, man? So one caveat before we get going and, and get into this, I would ask, part of my background is as a rhetorician, and so I study discourse, I study language, study the way words are composed and words are put together. And so we're going to hear some strong language tonight. Some of you may even call it cursing, but I don't call it that. Because as somebody who studies language, I know that people can curse me out, run me up and down and run the mill out without ever uttering a four-letter word. If they have a good command over any language, they can just curse me out. And so when I look at strong language, I begin to look at it and say, what is it actually saying? Now, I'm not just going to be up here just cursing just to curse. I'll try to keep it PG-13, all right, as much as I can. PG-13, you're allowed one F word, but, uh, you know, for, the, for those of you the film majors there. But I do want to throw that caveat out because sometimes it's easy to get offended by that. But I want to push us a little bit further to really begin to investigate to see what is actually being said. Because if you come into my office and you tell me, man, my mother effing grandmother just died and I'm all effed up about it. And my first response back to you is, wow, that's really messed up. But can you watch your language? I have killed that conversation. And so there's a difference between how we communicate and saying, for example, that's the shit and your shit. It's two different connotative meanings within that. So I'm going to be asking you tonight to hold some of that judgment, that Niberian avoidance of culture, all right? And to begin to engage in the dialogue and the appropriation of what God has to offer within this music. Is that all right? Amen. All right. I'm in from the black church now, so I'll be asking for a little call and response. All right. That's okay. I won't tell you to touch your neighbor. I won't do anything like that. Don't want to scare anybody away. Like, oh my gosh, they're touching neighbors at the face of music at Calvin. Those reform people. 
So hip hop is an urban subculture that seeks to express what? A lifestyle, attitude, and or urban individuality. Hip hop at its core, not the commercialization and commodity has become in certain respects, rejects dominant forms of culture and society and seeks to increase a social consciousness along with a racial and ethnic pride. Thus, hip hop uses rap music, dance, music production, MCN, and allegory as vehicles to send and fund its message of social, cultural, and political resistance to dominant structures of norms. This is one of the working definitions. Uh, this is, just came out of another piece that I'm working on, and so um, we worked on this. And by the way, I would offer that I am the founding editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hip-Hop Studies, so if you do have some pieces, I may be approaching you. We'll talk more about that later. But this is, as we look at it, hip-hop, how do we define it? So hip-hop, simply put, is a contextualized form of manufacturing religious discourse, meaning, and identity from within and for the people who are its listeners. Artists such as Tupac act as a type of, as Michael Eric Dyson defines, a natural theologian who interprets scripture and comment on it no different than, say, uh, T.D. Jakes or uh, Joel Osteen would do for their constituents. Mm-hmm. I said it. <laughs> Hip-hop, however, pushes past the traditionalized white, blonde, blue-eyed social construct of Christ and asks for a Jesus that smokes like we smoke, drink like we drink, and acts like we act. A Jesus that we can quote on, end quote, we can relate to in the hood. This type of Jesus also questions and acknowledges the social isolation is valid and real to all peoples in the hood. And every now and then, as one of my interviewees put it, Puts a foot in somebody's ass to tell a motherfucker he real, end quote. So as we begin to look at these things, we then have to engage in this post-soul, post-modern idealization of who Christ is. See, hip-hop community, I've worked in there for a long time, they don't want just the regular old Christ that we see continually kind of just, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, that's, that's cool, but that ain't going to work in the hood. And I can tell you that uh, when you begin to look at that, there, there are a lot of young people are leaving in drones in the church. We've, we've, we've talked, I'm sure you guys have read some of the studies by Pew and ARIS looking at the nuns, not the nuns, Catholic nuns, but the NONES. And as I've engaged young people in the inner city, they're saying, we want a Christ. We want that Christ that went in to the church and threw over tables and talked about people and went in there and actually called the Sadducees and Pharisees snakes and vipers, which in that time was the equivalent of what we would now consider the F word. You say, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Thing. What are you talking about, Dan? Well, we're looking at theomusicology where we begin to combine the sacred, the secular, and the profane and say, what is this community actually espousing? So let me briefly just go through some of these things here. So this is our working definition then of hip-hop. So hip-hop and the black theology comes out of the black prophetic traditions. When we start thinking about hip-hop, it's about slave protest in any form, whether it be physical, whether it be mind, whether it be emotional, whether it be spiritual, we're talking about that protest. And so good hip-hop begins to espouse this and begins to connect with this. What else are we talking about? We're talking about resistance in song. We're talking about how do we resist this? How do we resist these dominant forms? And it's a little controversial. I know how it is, you know, because you have ethnic minorities talking about these things. And it's a little bit different than having a Bruce Springsteen or a Bono say the F word. And like, oh my gosh, that's great, Bruce. I love that. That's excellent. Yes. 
tell me this war is effed up again, Bruce. Uh, tell me, Bono. Tell me how messed up it is. But when Tupac or DMX start to say these words, then it's a problem. And so we begin to be these preaching dissent through hip-hop and music. Well, what else? It's critical, radical, social observation of society. And so it's critique of dominant culture. is the search for contextualized deity. And ultimately, when John Michael Spencer calls praise and protest. John Michael Spencer is the author of Theomusicology, which is the methodology we'll be tinkering with this evening. So let me just briefly define it. And then we'll move forward looking at who Brother Tupac was. So theomusicology is musicology as a theologically informed discipline. It is a musical method for theologizing about the sacred, the secular, and the profane, principally incorporating thought and method borrowed from anthropology, sociology, psychology, and philosophy. There are three central analytical approaches, a descriptive the theomusicology, which is a non-judgmental description of the creators and consumers of that music. A normative theomusicology, analysis of the same above in comparison with the tenets of what the canonical authority of that present person and people have to say. And then lastly, predictive theomusicology, an analysis of the future state of affairs to which music speaks or directs society. Tupac falls into all three of these. When you start thinking about who Tupac was and the praise and protest that he had. So let's jump in real quick to see who Tupac really was and who he was about or what he was about. He was born to Afini Shakur on June 16th, 1971. Protest, resistance, and revolution era. This is what was happening in the era of Tupac Amaro Shakur. In fact, in one of the interviews I found of Tupac, he said, my womb was created in prison. His mom was in prison while she was pregnant with Tupac. So he said, I was formed in prison. I was formed in there. My, my, my embryo was formed in this. And so Tupac was raised in this era that said, you have whatever you do, whatever you say, however you engage, you engage for the community. You do it back for the community. And as many of the people that I interviewed uh, when I was working on my dissertation, looking at his gospel message, uh, told me that his house was like a halfway house. You know, even though he lived in one of the more, you know, a nice 12, 14 bedroom house, which one person told me is that almost every night each of those bedrooms were filled with people who just needed help, who just needed some, some, a leg up in society. And so Tupac believed and lived that. His original name was Lasan Parrish Crooks, but it was later converted, his mama Feeney converted it to Tupac Amaro Shakur, which translates as shining serpent, thankful to God. And you think, aha, you see, that's it. A serpent, that's the devil. But see, in Western traditions, we look at the serpent as a bad thing. But see, in certain Latino traditions where this was an Incan chief's name, the serpent was actually next to deity, next to God. See, and that's part of the lenses, I think, that we have to begin to engage is what lenses are we approaching these things to? Michael R. Dyson records that Tupac was obsessed with God. His lyrics drip with a sense of the divine. Tupac's spiritual matters never left him, although its form and function in his later life may have become almost unrecognizable, of course, by early standards. So what are we talking about? We're looking at he had prophetic visions. 
He had this idealization. In fact, he was raising money for a hip-hop political candidate for the year 2000. A lot of people didn't know that. He had about half a million dollars raised, and he was looking for it. Not a Republican, not a Democrat, not an Independent. Somebody who was actually hip-hop, who espoused hip-hop political values for the inner city and the hood. And, of course, the conspiracies go on and on. I believe the brother is dead. I know that's a question. Right now, some people are thinking, you think he's alive? No, I think he's dead. All right. Even though some of the comparisons of the Machiavelli seven-day theory of him rising after seven days are, are very, very uh, interesting, uh, but it's, it's been longer than seven days since he's dead. Right? His life is broken down into five ethno-life eras. Uh, the military mind from birth to about 1980, which he was gaining a lot of his knowledge, this idea about living uh, in a community, but living almost very closely similar to military-style conditions. Uh, criminal grind from 1981 to about 1988. This is when his mother, who was part of that renowned revolutionary tradition, uh, came to a grinding halt when she became addicted to crack herself. And you, and you know anything about the 80s in the inner city, it was an ugly time. It was not a fun time to be a part of the inner city. I mean, it was, it was the Wild West. I mean, the inner city's bad now, but uh, it was really bad then. Uh, the ghetto is destiny. This is by the time he started getting into um, uh, Shock G and um, Digital Underground. Uh, he became famous from 89 to about 92. Came out with a couple of albums. And then from 92 to about 95, he had this outlaw persona. He was being arrested. He got in. And unfortunately, oftentimes, this is what the public sees of Tupac. They see him flipping off the cameras. They see him spitting at the cameras. What they didn't see was all the humanitarian stuff that he would do. In fact, one of, the, one of his uh, limo drivers told me, he said, yeah, Tupac had gotten a phone call. He was on his way to a big concert in Detroit, of all places, right? Detroit. And he was on his way there when he got a phone call from a kid who was dying of cancer who said he wanted to meet Tupac. That was his wish. He stopped the caravan, turned around, and was actually a day late to the concert. And that was kind of the Tupac that, uh, that a lot of people that outside of the media came to know. And then, of course, lastly, his fifth era is the Ghetto Saint from 1996 to present. Well... What makes him this saint? What is this apotheosis, this apotheosis position, right? This position that says God created a certain way of the world, but guess what? Those ideals don't always tend to work out very well in real time. And so hip-hop says we're going to look at these things and we're going to engage these things for what they are. Every great artist has you say, look at my stuff, look at my mess, deal with it. And so Tupac is no different. Tupac died on September 13th, 1996, and he became much a imperfect saint as he began to engage. So let's look at one of the interviews of Tupac as we're, as we're thinking about who Tupac was, what Tupac did, and what Tupac talked about. I'm going to pray the audio is working.
this again Tupac sorry about that thank you see those are those these tech guys they're on it they are on it so the musicology in Tupac there's a descriptive form place of Tupac Tupac talked about these things the ghetto life the disenfranchisement of poor blacks and poor Latinos and poor disenfranchised whites a lot of people don't know that poor whites in this country are outnumbering blacks and Latinos combined four to one but we don't see that. Of course, poverty tends to get a color. That's for another keynote lecture. So it's post-soul, post-modern, however you want to call it, this era. He was that voice. And he began to viciously deconstruct the black church, which began to get him into even more trouble. It was one thing to critique and deconstruct mainstream evangelical theology, but to get into the black church and to actually begin to critique it and say, why do pastors have to make ten times more than their parishioners in their community? And why are you driving around in a Benz when the people in your community are coming to showing up in a bus? What's up with that? And so Tupac calls these things out, so this descriptive part of his life. So the predictive, well that's pretty straightforward. Tupac had a voice for the hip-hop generation. You know, this hip-hop theological mediator. You just heard this interview here, he's telling you, I feel like I'm this conduit between God and young, and young people. And I can tell you from experience, as I did my interviews, uh, my case studies on just individuals themselves, I can't tell you how many people who told me, I found God and I better understood the Bible as a result of what Tupac said in his music. But it didn't just stop at his music, he had poetry. I mean, this man had so much material. I mean, he had stuff that he would just write down on a napkin. And it was preserved, thankfully, and folks like myself were like, oh my gosh, where'd you come up with that? So he had a real-time connection with skeptics and the nuns. There's a lot of atheists that I interviewed who said, yeah, you know what, Tupac, you don't tell anybody, but you know, he started making me a believer. This idea that I can't really go to church, right? And that's what Tupac said, right? I go to church, but they underhanded. God gave me these commandments. And so he's calling out these double standards and saying, wait a minute, it's kind of hard to be optimistic when your homie's lying dead on the pavement twisted. Y'all don't hear me though. I'm trying hard to make amends, but I'm losing all my mother effing friends. How long will they mourn me? And so in those songs, he's trying to make this connection, this deeper connection and pathway, if you will, to God. And how do I begin to see a contextualized God? And ultimately the normative, which is a shift in religious thought from 1991 to present. The mystery of God is beginning to be embraced. Ambiguity becoming more and more valued. I mean, most of my college students, most of my advisees, they don't want simple answers anymore. Well, just pray about it. No, 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 no. We're moving beyond that. We're moving beyond just pray about things. And it is what Anthony Penn describes in his book, Why Lord Suffering in the Black Human Context, as nitty-gritty hermeneutic. We're going to move beyond just praying about things and actually get down to the nitty-gritty of life. 
which is where Tupac said, I'm going to be. So, that being said, let's look at one of the songs. I'm going to pull up the lyrics here. Hopefully this is making sense. I know if you don't understand or if you have just the first time you've seen Theo Musicology, I know it's a little hard, so we have Q&A at the end. I'll be happy to answer some of these questions. So social conditions. I'm going to play a song. Uh, that, again, the lyrics are here. I want you to, uh, to kind of uh, take this in. Uh, the, the, the video I showed you before was with Ed Gordon when BET was actually still owned by black folk and it was actually called BET. Um, but uh, he was asking those questions. And so here... Tupac is, 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 is asking, okay, what's, what's, what, what's going on there? What's, what's, what's happening? What's, what's, what's going on? Um, this is in a song called Blasphemy, where Tupac actually calls out church and calls out individuals and says, hey, what's happening in this era? So let's take a look at this. Excuse me, Rams, I apologize for that. This one. Here we go. Sorry about that. Here we go. song, as you can begin to see, Tupac and the outlaws are calling out, what's going on here? What about this idea of religion? Not necessarily God, not Christ, but this idea of religion, this idea of coming to church and doing dogmatic principles to get to a certain place. And hence he says, everybody kissing ass to go to heaven ain't going. And even in some of the other work that I've done, I found that many people, many Christians, as I followed Billy Graham around for several years and doing case study work around contemporary evangelism models, most people just went to church because they didn't want to go to hell. They didn't want to burn. And so Tupac says, I don't, that's not enough. We're looking at a relationship. In fact, the beginning of this song actually starts out with a call to God, an actual sinner's prayer at the beginning of the song. All right, and he actually calls out, you know, but it's his mixing again of the sacred, the profane, and the secular. And so it's not going to necessarily look pretty. It's not going to necessarily look lily. It's going to look hoodish. It's going to look raw. It's going to look rough. But I think when we take a pull back, a lot of the things that we're engaged in, we're, we're, we're in those areas as well. Black, white, Asian, Latino. And I think God sees those things. And so Tupac begins to speak to that. Let's look at another song. Let's look at, uh, this one's from EDI and Young Noble from the Outlaws. And uh, they espouse some interesting uh, lyrics here when they look about the uh, pusher and the reverend and the pimp. Let's take a, let's, let's take a listen.
interviewed the outlaws, one of the things they told me, they said every time we were in the studio, it was church. It was about work and learning who God was and figuring out our own lives. You know anything about the outlaws? You know their name tells a lot of where they are. They were runaway kids. They were on the street. Tupac said, y'all have talent. Come with me. And he put them up, trained them, put them in videos. And so they're talking about this life. What's going on? What's happening? How do I begin to connect with these ideals? I think the black metal group of the 80s, Living Color, said it best. When I look out your America, your America's doing fine. When I look out my America, my America's doing time. I just want to know which way to your America. And so rappers begin to ask these questions. Why is it that I see this perfected image of what I'm supposed to be like, but yet I live in this? And being from Southern California, I can tell you it's not all palm trees and sunny trees. And on April 29th, 1992, if you remember that, it was the verdict of the Rodney King case. Those messages erupted, and I was a young, 18, angry, young, black sickened male on the streets of South Central Los Angeles, trying to figure out where God was in the midst of this. How can? I've been going to this church for almost all my life, and you're telling me to pray to a God that I don't see. In fact, Old Dog in the great movie Menace Society says, how can God even exist? We live in such an effed up place. And so rappers are grappling with this. They're grappling with these ideas. And I think this is where a lot of us are too, but it's just, it's easier to kind of point to rap and say, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's a mess. Now, again, I'm not talking about the mess that you hear from uh, Lil Wayne. I ain't talking about the mess you hear from Rick Ross. Rick Ross ain't even Rick Ross. He was a corrections officer. He stole his name, even 50 Cent stole his name. Curtis Jackson is not who you think he is. But Tupac was this, he was who he was. And he lived those things. Let's listen to another song. I've got a couple of sides, and then we're going to end on a song called So Many Tears. We're going to pseudo-exegete this, this, this last song. Is that be all right? Okay. I'm keeping an eye on my time. I know. I know. There's a concert coming, so I've I'm, I'm, I got my eye on the time. I know. Y'all see, he's black, though. You know, I know he's going to start to let us out at 10 o'clock. Like, no, I ain't going that long. This ain't Easter service, right? I hate so. Or Christmas service, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I laugh because I talked to a friend of mine who uh, went to Easter service at one of our renowned black churches in Chicago. Uh, and, I, you know, I heard him at 8. I said, are we getting together later? He's like, yeah, yeah, And he, you know, I saw him later on at 3. He said, man, we just got out of church, man. I'm like, dang, brother. Woo! So, we're going to look at social conditions uh, in heaven. So here we go. This is a, this is a song uh, that uh, I wanted to, to have you guys listen to. But before that, before we get to these lyrics, I just want you to listen to this one song called Poe Nigga Blues. Now this is Tupac looking at it, particularly from a Marxist perspective, and saying, how can you expect me to live like an angel when I'm surrounded by devils? And so how does, from a sociological perspective, how does the society... How does the construct of the areas begin to influence what decisions you make? Because it's too easy to just say, well, that's on them. See, our American autonomy sometimes tells us, well, that's on them, right? NIMBY, not in my backyard. As long as I don't have to see it or deal with it, I don't have to engage it. And so that's their problem. Hey, they made the decision. But oftentimes, rappers say, no, 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 wait a minute. It's not just the decision. Almost every gang member I've interviewed in my course and line of work over the last 19 years has told me, I don't really want to be in this. 
I wish there could be something different. But because I'm in this, this is what I got to do. When am I going to go work at McDonald's and make 4.25 an hour? Or even worse, when you got somebody who is a convicted felon, they're that for life. So check out. This is what's called Poe Naked Blues. And I wanted you to listen to this rather than just seeing the lyrics. We'll get to this song in a minute, but I wanted you to listen to this one right here. So check this out. So as again, you can get to listen to it and begin to see, actually hear Ron Isley in the back from the Isley Brothers, for those of you who know who the Isley Brothers are, singing in the backtrack there. And so it's a pretty simple, straightforward beat, looped, but the lyrics are pronounced. And that's some of the differences when you start thinking about rap and music. East Coast is going to really emphasize lyrics and tonality through the structure of their discourse and the way they rap. The Dirty South is going to really emphasize what's called the hook, the chorus line, right? And, of course, the West Coast, you're going to hear the beat a lot. Right. Uh, so you can kind of begin to kind of tell some of the differences between different rap songs. But in this song, he's really beginning to ask, wait, what's, what's going on? You're looking at me like I'm a murderer, but wait a minute, what, what have, how have you contributed to some of these things? So again, controversial, but nevertheless, an issue that I think our time has to deal with. See, here's the thing that music does so well, is that it begins to engage the issues of our society today and says, look at these things through a different lens. How are we engaging these issues? How are we not? How are we ignoring them? How is justice being had or how is it not? And how do we begin to grapple with these things? And again, it's easy to overlook it because that's them on that side of the town rather than engaging in this. And that's why, again, I'm thankful for being here and beginning to engage in this conversation because hip-hop theology, we're, we're a small community of scholars and, and practitioners in the country. And so when we look at these things and we say, how do we really look at this thing? How do we really engage this? And if you're part of the American Academy of Religion, come check us out because we're there and we're trying to look at these things. And we're not just looking at it necessarily from a Christian perspective. We're looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, a Gnostic perspective. We're looking at it from an atheist perspective, a humanist perspective, and where God shows up in all these areas. Woo! Now that's the conversations I want to be having right there, but let's look at the social conditions and heaven. This is from a song by one of his better albums, Me Against the World, hence the song Me Against the World. And he's talking about these idealizations. You know, I feel like I'm against the world. I feel like it's just me and them. And, I, and as I interviewed, I was at least 35 people who said that this song actually talked them off the ledge from committing suicide. And so Tupac connects. Tupac connects. So check this out. Oh, my God. 
And so again, politicians and hypocrites, they don't want to listen. If I'm insane, it's the fame made a brother change. It's just me against the world. And so unfortunately, oftentimes, a lot of our young people find themselves here. And you think, well, Dan, that's great for hood kids or urban kids. But no, 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 it doesn't stop there. He gets right into suburbia. Gets right into rich areas. In fact, I was in the middle of Iowa. What is that, corn country? I don't even know what country that is. I know Iowa and Nebraska, I don't know. It was just in the middle of nowhere. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, these kids aren't going to necessarily know about hip-hop and rap. Boy, was I wrong. Because they're connecting and they're trying to figure out. See, it's a different world out there. When I show up to places like Youth Specialties, the courses that I teach on the urban-suburban blend are out the door. Because people are trying to figure this thing out. See, there's a change coming. If you haven't noticed already, it's a demographic shift, there's a cultural shift, and people are trying to figure these things out. And see, I say today, I say it with passion, I say it with vigor, we don't necessarily live in a world devoid of God, this secularism, right? We live in a culture and society of people who want to engage the spiritual and want to engage in God. And so rappers like Tupac say, we're going to have this conversation, but guess what? We're going to do it outside the four walls of the church. And we're going to probably engage other areas that are outside our Western Greco-Roman idealizations of what we think Christianity should be. And so hip-hop begins to espouse that. It begins to connect with that. So how do we begin to connect these things? Let's look at it. Let's look at Tupac's theomusicological gospel. In pursuit of Jesus' heart and counsel, this is ultimately what Tupac is saying. I want to find a Christ that is just like me. I want to have an intimate relationship with a God who engages in the areas and is, it is a suffering Christ. I want a bloody Christ because that is my life. It's not this theology of celebration, which is good. But we need a theology of suffering to balance that out. We always hear theology of celebration. He begins to get people to think, well, geez, I will never be that perfect. I don't have these things. And so Tupac says, we're going to engage in this theology of suffering. The transcendental connections to the thug, the pimp, and the nigger. As Tupac continually said, he said, I am going to make sure that these individuals and these people are able to find their pathways to God. This comes out in his music, and he comes out in the idealization of social conditions. It's very similar to Kanye West's Jesus Walks. Now, I ain't talking about the Kanye now. I'm talking about the Kanye 10 years ago, all right? I know, Kanye and Kardashian. I know, that's for another keynote talk right there on that. I'll leave you with that right there. But 10 years ago, in 2003, when he had Jesus Walks come out, this was ultimately, he was picking up the mantle and saying, why I want to make sure that this is continued on and this is carrying on. Well, what else? Pain, suffering, and strife in theological narrative. Now, this is important because it's easy, to, again, to overlook some of these things and to be like, oh, man, they said the F-bomb. That's it. I'm turning it off. Hopefully, you don't stop there. Like I said before, you begin to push past some of these things and say, what's the music actually saying? Because as a, someone who studies discourse, we change every 120, 115 years. We redefine what curse words are. Now, I get we have to respect the society. We have to respect people. I'm not about tearing down people. But like I said before, you can do that easily, tearing down people without ever uttering a four-letter word. And so I'm about pushing past that and seeing what is the theological narrative within this. It is about, as Anthony Pence said, a nitty-gritty hermeneutic. 
Ebony Utley in her great book, Rap and Religion, says, Jesus fraternized with sexually licentious women, cavorted with sinners, worked on the Sabbath, had a temper, used profane language with religious people, praised faithfulness over stilted forms of religious piety, and honored a God more than government. Gangsters respect Jesus because they see the parallels between his life and theirs. And so Jesus begins to show up in music like this. When I was in Paris six, seven years ago, I don't speak French. I was doing some work along hip, around hip hoppers in Paris. In Paris, if you know anything about the city structure, the inner city, the outer city is actually where the suburbs are in our area. Now, we're starting to move that way in our city structures, but in Paris, that's where the cats were hanging out. In the, in the inner city, the, the urban area, what we consider urban, that's where the affluent live. And so when I was there, I don't speak, you know, I don't speak French. But I spoke Tupac, and we connected for seven and a half hours. And around that time, this was 2007, there was a lot of political upheaval. There was a lot of madness going on, a lot of rioting. And at the heart of that was, we want our voice heard. Okay? Because at the end of the day, power is invisible here in the United States. The reason some of these revolutions work in some other countries is because they know where some of these presidents and some of these officials live. We don't know who even the CEO is of some of these banks. If I showed you a picture of, you know, some, some men, they were going to be all men, probably all, all men uh, on here, and I'd say, who's the CEO of Chase? I don't know. So Tupac says, wait, 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 wait a minute, there's, there's something, something going on here. But hold up, hold on and hope. It's not just about the pain and suffering. Hold on. So the idea that mama was a crack fiend, I still held you as a black queen, mama. So we're still making these connections to hold on to hope and to begin to say at the end of the day, there is a hope, there is a God. Heaven has a ghetto. He said, oh my gosh, I hope not. Oh, oh gosh, the, the bad smells and the, and the broken glass. Oh, everywhere, you know, people pissing on the floor like they just don't care. Oh, God, oh gosh, I hope not. But at the end of the day, what this simply means is, is that there is space in heaven for people who don't fit the model of what we came to know as or come to know as Christians. See, the late, great Richard Twist, Native American Christian and evangelist and speaker, God rest his soul, he went to be with God a few months ago, said it like this, he said, you know, when Christians and missionaries came into the Native American homes, he said, you know, we had to look a certain way in order to become Christians. We had to take off our garments, we had to be like these other people, we had to practice what we were told to practice in order to become Christians. And that same principle has been very similar to the young hip-hop generation. We tell them to pull their pants up, take the braids out, quit talking a certain way, quit smoking weed. But see, I want to be a part of the church like the shelter on the film Eight Mile that wanted young people in the basement of that church. This is written into the script, y'all. Who wanted young people in that church, they were doing outreach. I don't care what you look like, I don't care how many weeds you smoke, you were here, as opposed to out on the violent streets out there. It's part of the missionary work, and so that was what Tupac was ultimately after. So I'm going to show you one more clip, and just kind of get in this mind of Tupac, and then we're going to listen to a song, and then I will wrap it up. So this clip here, uh, and it's not that long, but this particular clip deals with Tupac on social movements and just kind of the way he understands how things don't always work out the way we plan. So check it out. 
So, Tupac begins to say, wait a minute now, there's some stuff going on. Some stuff going on. And I remember being part of the, uh, we gotta remember, acronyms were his life. So remember, for Tupac, thug life and the thug was never what the dictionary said. Thug life for him meant the hate you give little infants Fs everyone. Nigga for him always, of course, meant never ignorant getting goals accomplished. And so when you begin to look at those things and begin to say, how does this yin and the yang come through and how does it come out? We begin to really see this in a song called So Many Tears. How do I begin to present to God this brokenness of who I am? But yet there's a God I think that can forgive me. I think, but I'm not sure because I've been told that I'm not holy enough because I smoke a blunt or I drink some beer. I don't know. And so, So Many Tears is a song that engages in this discourse that I think a lot of us are in, that we ask these questions. You know, we don't get mad at Luther, or we don't get mad at even Kant, or we don't get mad at even Friedrich Nietzsche when asking some of these questions about faith and life. Tupac pushes beyond the God is dead thesis and says, you know, God is alive. I just don't know if I'm going to get there with you. And so of all the leaders that have been around since the death of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, Tupac has been one of the few of the singularized leaders that said people say, he speaks for me. And so in this song, you have a sample from Minnie Ripperton, tragic death, 31 years old. Minnie claimed that she was going to be a prophetic voice in the soul community. So Tupac picked his music wisely. He also uses a sample from Stevie Wonder, That Girl. You remember that song, that girl thinks that she's so fine. You know she blows my mind. When you begin to exegete music in the hip-hop, you have to begin to look at what are the samples saying. Because as a producer, you don't just put music together. You look at how each snare and how each hi-hat and how each tone and how each bass, even how you're going to construct the melody and how all those things talk to about who God is. When I worked on the album uh, by the... Um, the um, oh man, I am I am spacing. They would kill me too, because I worked on their album too. What did the oh oh man, 1999 Eternal Bone Thugs in Harmony. You know they put a whole album together saying how do we grapple with issues of death, life, demonic presences, and God, all in one album. Now, it's easy for people like G. Craig Lewis, if you follow who he is, you know that he says that all of hip-hop is demonic and satanic, even Christian and, uh, you know, religious rap. He says all that's demonic. And so you can look at that and say, oh, my gosh, there's curses and everything on there. But what they were trying to do on that album was actually figure this thing out here. So if you look at the verses here, we'll have the words up. Verse 1, this exhortation of lament and misery, and each verse will have what's going on a little bit, a little context of what's going on uh, with Tupac. And if you were able to actually zoom some of the tracks, you'll actually hear a sinner's prayer and him grappling with what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. So, let us take a look at this, or let's take a listen, shall we say, at this song, and I'll keep the lyrics up here.
those are the words of Tupac. I leave you with this. And as we engage and begin to look at things and begin to grapple with things, don't leave out that which just seems unfamiliar and uncontrasted. In a song like this, people are searching for God. People are looking to where God is. And in those spaces of the secular, profane, and sacred, God can begin to actually show up. Thank you for your time. Uh, Ken at? Are we going to do some Q&A here or are we, we done? Kenzie, he has left the building. Alright. So, um, if you guys have some questions, some feedback, some comments, I guess we can, uh, or you got, you got something, brother? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, just speak up. Just speak up. I'll try to repeat the question. Yes, sir. Was there anybody on the gospel side of things doing stuff as raw as Tupac that maybe just forget about? I think um, that's a good delineation. I think, yes, I think there are people, I think, I mean, I like Lecrae. I mean, obviously a lot of people know Lecrae. Um, I like propaganda. I think propaganda is trying to do some things, and he's, you know, calling out some of these these areas. Um, and I think uh, people like Odd Thomas out of Seattle is also trying to bridge some of these areas and also influenced by some of the workings um, of Tupac. Um, I use Tupac simply because he's really at the top of the heat. I mean, it's really him and Biggie, even, you know, Christian rap artists. And I... And I Here's the thing. I don't. I mean, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest. When people say, "Oh, you know, what about Christian rap?" It's like, well, I don't really look at things like that. I'm like, I think Tupac's music is Christian. I think some of it is engaging in these areas. And so, um, but if you're looking at the genre of that, then yes, there are some holy hip hoppers on the Christian side who are uh, trying to do that. And I would say on the Muslim Nation of Islam side, there's rappers like Jasiri X that are trying to also engage these areas. You know, these areas of social justice. I mean, this, I don't even know how. This brother gets around. Obviously, he ain't married and got kids, because he's everywhere, right? Um, but at the end of the day, he's also trying to deal and grapple with some of these things on a, on a kind of a neo-spiritual side. Good question, though. Yes, sir? Uh, one of the reasons that's historically given for why the golden age uh, the golden age is through uh, the, the lessening of samples and the lessening of production influenced by mm -hmm. R&B and soul. Do you see any truth in the truth of that? Um, there is sort of truth. I mean, the question was, if you didn't hear it, like, one of the arguments is that the reason that the commercialization kind of came around was because the lessening of samples, the lessening of, um, of, of music that you've taken. I mean, for a while, people, you're right, didn't know what to do with samples. I mean, back in the day, in the 90s, like, when I, I, I scored the first two seasons of New York Undercover. I don't know if you guys remember New York Undercover. Fox was kind of the first, uh, what is it, the wire, you know, kind of, but it's kind of mellower than the wire, right? But, um, we were just using samples left and right. There was no copyright issues. It's like, you know, there was no laws. Now it's, I think you get, what, three quarters of a second or something like that before you have to, 
It's something crazy. I mean, it's something crazy, right? I think there is part of that that comes on the musical end. And on the business end side of it, the decline was that after Biggie's death in 97, um, there was an all-out war within studios, within areas. And so a lot of the major, the big fours, you know, uh, Warner Music Group, uh, MCA Universal, EDI, Sony Music, all came around and said, we're going to buy up a lot of these independent record labels. And so between about 97 and 99, you had this buying up. And so from a business perspective, uh, it got condensed into these major four major record labels. Radio stations, it used to be a time you could walk in. I, I'm from the Bay Area, so 106.1 KMEL. You could walk into this. There you go. You could walk into the station and be like, hey, man, I know y'all got some dead time. Can y'all play my track? And they do it. Back in the 80s and 90s, they do it. But now... They ain't happening. They're in a contract. So they got to play Lil Wayne's. They got to play, you know, whoever it is that's on their contract. They got to play them in what's called heavy rotation. And so I always tell people the birth of what we see now as party strip club rap began with Nelly's Country Grammar album. I mean, you hear that album, you've heard the last 13, 14 years of commercialized hip hop. And we entered into this era. We wanted to because we were, okay, oh, we're tired of shooting everybody up. Let's talk about fun. That's great, but there's no balance now, right? Now it's just all about, I mean, you got cats, that young cats that want to espouse some of these positive lyrics, right? But they're caught between a rock and a hard play. I'll give you an example, and I don't want to, because this is a great question. I think about it a lot. So David Banner, I don't know if you guys know who David Banner, Mississippi rapper. Um, he's been around for a while. One of his better albums, Baptized in Dirty Water. Nevertheless, David Banner. So on a radio show, who was Davey D? I don't know if you guys know who Davey D is. Davey D is renowned MCD. DJ, he's been around for a long time, hip-hop historian. And so we were on a radio show together about, I don't know, this was 2006, right after Katrina, right? And so David Banner was like, my community, because he's from Mississippi, right? He's like, my community got hit even worse than New Orleans. So he said, I am scrapping my entire album that I got now, because all I was talking about is money, women, and getting drunk. I'm sick of that. And he put together, constructed 16 tracks of powerful, hard-hitting social. He said, 98% of this is going to go back to the community, and the other 2% is going to go back into funds to help rebuild some of the infrastructure around here. Okay? So his record company gets wind of that. And within 48 hours, they have a writ of intention and a letter, a memo of understanding saying that if you don't literally get back to talking about the bees and the hoes, you will be under, you know, under, under contract liability. We'll let you settle your debts with your managers, your producers, and your agents and the studios on your own. We expect an answer within 24 hours. And so a lot of rappers are caught between this rock and a hard place. Same thing with 50 Cent. You know, he's, he wants to talk about some of these things, but then he's caught because it's like, well, I'm on this contract. And so, of course, we get into the philosophical moral things, but that from the business side of it, there's been a major shift in how artists have the freedom over what they're able to say. I mean, when, when in 2005, when Kanye said black, Bush doesn't like black people, I mean, he, I mean, he almost lost it there. I mean, I'm not talking about, I mean, I know Kanye's got some issues. I, I, I got that. But I like Kanye simply because that he's willing to go there, but he almost lost it all there, if that makes sense. So what you're asking is a really good question. But yes, I do think from the artistic side, the samples have put a lot of restraint, if you will, on the kind of the creativity, because that's part of the postmodern voice. That's what Russell Potter, right, talks about in the postmodern vernacular, looking at hip-hop and vernacular discourses. He says, you know, part of the postmodern music is to take music that wasn't supposed to sound a certain way and then flip it and turn it around and make it sound something completely different. I mean, you know, it's getting kind of into faculty and theory and all that good stuff, but nevertheless, you, you ask it a very important question, so hopefully that kind of covers some of the synopsis of that. Good. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes I love you. 
inspired by him. Who do you think is carrying out the vision best? I know you mentioned Kanye as a college dropout. You can tell like there's a lot of several, there's like several themes. Yeah. Line up with like Tupac. Yeah. yeah. Who do you think today is carrying out that? I think the one who was blessed about one year ago to carry on this mantle, and this was this Snoop, well, he ain't Snoop anymore, Snoop Lion, right, you know, got around, I mean, a lot of the famous rappers came around him, and that was Kendrick Lamar. So Kendrick Lamar, and I know, I mean, he's like, yeah, but he's got stuff about women, but listen to the music. Listen to what it's talking about. He picked up the mantle from Brenda's Got a Baby, and I'm going to flip it around and tell you, no, 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 this is a whole different story. And so Kendrick Lamar is really one of those areas that he's, he's really, like Nas tried. Don't get me wrong, I love Nas. I mean, Illmatic, are you kidding me? I mean, come on, man. But again, a lot of these rappers, Jay-Z too, I mean, the, the riots in Brooklyn. I mean, everybody's like, Jay-Z, you, you, you gonna say anything, bro? This is your neighborhood, you know? So I get that. But I think Kendrick Lamar, I like Macklemore. Man, Macklemore's doing some good. I think um, Brother brother Ali, I think is his name, brother. Yeah, I think he, he's doing some good stuff as well. And like I said, Jasiri X, he's trying to, but you know, Jasiri's still in the underground. I mean, the stuff he's talking about. Paris, same thing with Paris. Paris, he's in, but he's sitting on some, <laughs> dude, you can't even put that on the radio, man. I can't, that, that's great stuff, but they ain't gonna wanna hear about no 9-11 theory in the hood and all this stuff like that. You know, they ain't gonna, they gonna wanna hear that stuff. We're still trying to get past, you know, George Bush hates black people. You know, we're still, a lot of people are still on that. But I would definitely say I like Kendrick Lamar a lot. I listen to him a lot, in, in whether it be my iPod or Spotify or whatever, wherever I can get music these days. Um, BitTorrent. Oh, oh, I don't do BitTorrent. But nevertheless, um, if I, however I can get music, that's, that's, who I, that's who I listen to a lot. And really trying to break down his music. I mean, what was it? I think on... Um, what album is that where he actually has a blunt, uh, a Bible, a cross, and a gun? I mean, hello, the sacred, the secular, and the profane. All, and, he, and, he, and he's trying to espouse and trying to, trying to engage with this stuff. And I like The Roots. I mean, I like The Roots. The Roots album, Undone, that's a conceptual album. We don't even have conceptual albums anymore, right? Now, I'm not knocking iTunes, right? But one of the negative things about iTunes is that you can download one song at a time, but you miss on an album like The Roots Undone, which deals with alcoholism, which deals with family separation, which deals with abuse, which deals with suicidal tendencies and thoughts. All the ideations are in this. But if you just download one song, you're like, oh, that's, what are they even talking about? The lighthouse. Someone's in the lighthouse and face down in the dead. I, what? I, I don't get that. Those rappers, it's the hair and the drums. You know, so you miss out. Right? You miss out on a whole bunch of stuff. And, I, but, and from an artistic perspective, going back to what my was talking about over here, from an artistic perspective, because I love the art of making music. A lot of rappers, they make one or two hits and the rest is just filler. And then you've also got to deal with well, I don't want to get into that because that's a whole other situation. But, you know, like, for example, if you're a new artist and you get signed and you got to have somebody like, oh, I don't know, Lil Wayne. Let's say, or, or, or even, um, yeah, let's just go with Lil Wayne, for lack of a better argument. Um, Lil Wayne charges $68,000 a minute to be on your album. So a lot of artists think, I got $11 million per diem. Mm, yeah, I got $11 million. Well, a lot of them actually go into debt because out of that $11 million, you got to pay for all your albums. You got to pay for your producers. You can't just go to Joe's studio up the street. You got to go to their studio, which is typically between $15 and $2,200 an hour. Alright? Um, and so they end up actually becoming indebted, and that's part of the more of the machine. But what you ask is really good. I would say those are some of the artists off the top of my head. Excellent question. We have time for one more. 
All right. Come on with it. Oh, yeah, yeah. On political issues in the government. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. But he's one of my favorite artists being from Chicago, too. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So Lupe Fiasco, I, I love Lupe Fiasco, man. I mean, he's got some good stuff. Um, I would definitely say he's trying to push forward. I think it was interesting to hear excuse me, the Twitter argument between he and um, um, Talib Kweli. It was, you know, it was, it was the last week or so. So it's just kind of interesting. Like, come on, fellas. I mean, we're kind of on the same team. I mean, we don't have to be doing this now, you know. But I get it. It's Twitter. That's, you know, that's what it's about. I, I, I understand that. But I think Lupe is really trying to grapple with this area. You know, him being, of course, Muslim and Nation of Islam, you know, is, is trying to look at how does my faith play out in this arena? How do, how do I begin to engage these areas? So I think... In another manner, he's continuing on in this area. Like when I wrote the Soul of Hip Hop, I, I really didn't include a lot of Lupe. I wanted, I wanted the book I'm working on now, the Hostile Gospel, uh, which I'm hoping it'll be out by the end of this year. It, it better be because we've been working on it way too daggone long. I talk a lot about Lupe and just kind of his own transcendent allegories that he begins to kind of espouse through through his lyrics. Because you're right, he's he's involved with political stuff and he's very critical of the Obama administration, which I don't see as a bad thing either. People's like, oh my God, but you're black. I mean, how can you say that, right? And I know, don't be tripping. You know, we don't. We're not tribal. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that he's he's able to do some things that I think other rappers aren't, uh, and get into spaces that a lot of young cats aren't able to do as well. But he's a, he's an excellent excellent example. I think another person, if you're looking for people, to look up Lupe Fiasco. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys, thank you.